Morning. Hey, my name is Seth. It's a pleasure to be here with you guys this morning. So, um, my dad. Uh, some of you guys might get the pleasure to meet him uh, should he come up and visit soon. My dad is an incredible storyteller. Now, um, for me, this is a big deal because I have memories, you know, back about the age of five, my dad uh, tucking us, me and my brother, in with bedtime stories, uh, Aesop's fables, among lots of other ones. And this is a big deal to me. Um, I've shared it before. I was adopted. So my life for the first four years, I, I didn't have a dad that was involved. Uh, so I went from like no story time with dad to a terrific story time with dad. And my dad was a great storyteller. Um, one time he took me and my brother camping uh, up, in, up in the mountains of California. So when I say that, I mean like real mountains. I'm not talking about Minnesota hills. Like Buck Hill, that's not a mountain. I'm talking about a real mountain. So we're camping in the mountains. I haven't been camping in the mountains before. And um, I, there's certain scenarios that make me nervous. I, I, have, I have some anxieties about things. Like I never want to get like locked in a confined tight space. That, that would make me uncomfortable. Um, Airplanes cause me a little bit of anxiety. I don't like physical danger. It's generally how I feel about it. So my dad decided that right before we go to bed in the mountains, he's going to tell us a story about a ferocious grizzly bear eating children. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. That was a great trip. Thank you. Um, now, between my, uh, between my sophomore and junior year of college, uh, I returned home to California, and I enlisted in the Marine Corps. Um, I, uh, I, I shipped off to boot camp, took an Amtrak train down to San Diego and spent 90 days getting tormented. Um, it, was, it was real difficult, one of the hardest things I've done in my life. And um, I think I've mentioned before, if you've heard me, I, I come from a very military family. Uh, my dad is uh, devoted to the Marine Corps. Um, both of my grandparents uh, were in World War II and Korea. and. Um, my dad's dad is, is a war hero. Um, so, oh, look at that. Now, um, I will say that uh, I, um, as a person committed to nonviolence, this is sometimes a part of my family's history that's a challenge for me. However, I, I saw Jesus meet with a Roman centurion and find something to honor. He honored that centurion's faith. And so for uh, me and my family and some of the military history there, I find a way to honor their courage and sacrifice. Um, even though for me, I believe the cross and not the sword determine world history. And uh, that's a kingdom commitment that I've made. This is a clapping crowd today. Must have been the fireworks last night, right? We're like just ready to cheer. Um, now, at the end of my time in boot camp, the weekend before we were going to graduate, uh, I got a letter from my dad. Um, now, my dad is an attorney turned judge, so one of his favorite uh, pieces of, uh, one of his favorite things in the world is a legal pad. He loves it. It's like named after his profession. He loves them. They're yellow. He just loves it. Takes a blue pen. My dad writes like pharmacists or like doctors write prescriptions. It's like hieroglyphics. And this is a three-page letter that I, I got to read from my dad at boot camp. And uh, I'll, I'll literally never forget this letter. He said, Seth, when you walk the line on the parade deck and graduate um, from Marine Corps training, it won't just be you that's walking that line. You're, you're part of a history, part of a, a long line. He told me a story about uh, when he was in Vietnam. Uh, when he was in Vietnam, he was a, a young lieutenant, and uh, he had, it was his turn to, to have duty, uh, night watch, and another friend of his stepped up and said, hey, I'll take it tonight, you, uh, you, you'll take mine tomorrow night. 
Uh, and his friend that, wa- that took watch that night got killed. And my, my dad told me a story about how like, being a Marine was about having courage. And one of the things about that story and many other stories that my dad told me, these stories sort of summed up some of my family history. And uh, that story is that McCoys, if you're part of the McCoy clan, you step up to challenges. That's like, that's in my family like blood. It, it's in those stories. Now, the McCoy family isn't the only kind of family that I'm a part of that rises up to challenges. Um, if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to take it out. I brought mine. Uh, gold pages on the sides and all. Um, if you have a Bible, I'm going to encourage you to grab it. Uh, if you keep yours on the phone, you can do that too. I'm going to be reading out of the NIV. If you don't have yours, we will put it on the screen uh, to be hospitable to you. Okay? Psalm chapter 78. O my people, hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter hidden things, things from old. What we have heard and known, what our fathers have told us, we will not hide them from their children. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power and the wonders he has done. He decreed decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which he commanded our forefathers to teach their children. He commanded our forefathers to teach their children. So the next generation would know them, and even the children yet to be born. This is us. And they, in turn, would tell their children. And then the goal of all this, right, then they would put their trust in God and would never forget his deeds, but would keep his commands. Now, in Psalms, what we have is, uh, is the writings of a, of, a, of a nation, a group of people named Israel, the, the people of faith. I want you to think about this for a second. The, the, the stories that are, that are filling the Old Testament, are there stories about God's power there? Are there stories of, of like wonder? See, the thing about these stories of old is that it's, the Old Testament, um, up to the point of the Psalms, it's, it's not a story about humans. This is a story about God. Like, this is one of the things about the Bible that we sometimes get wrong. Because so many of the characters are human that we sometimes can forget the main character in the Bible is God. And the one thing that God does all throughout the story is he just never stops being faithful. If you keep reading in that psalm about the stories that are to be retold, it's amazing how many of those stories are about God being incredibly faithful and God's people being incredibly what? Unfaithful. Incredibly unfaithful. The thing is, like, the whole Old Testament from beginning all the way to the middle, then Jesus picks up the story and moves it forward. That story is a story about God being incredibly faithful. Think about this for one second, right? From, from Abraham at the beginning of the story. I'm pointing this way because that's where that is. Abraham is down there. Um, think about this. Not one generation got skipped. Nobody missed out on an opportunity to be part of what God was doing Generation after generation after generation. Is that because the humans did such a great job of telling the story? No, it's because God simply refuses to be unfaithful. There's a story of like great deeds and great power and wonder. And I love some of the defiant language in the psalm. It says like, we will not hide it. We won't hide it. 
And the thing about it is, for us, that may sound a little odd, like, why would you hide it? But if you were a Christian growing up in China right now, this would be an incredibly challenging verse. Um, now, I'm a, I'm a licensed Mennonite pastor, so I belong to a tradition of Christianity called Anabaptism that we've talked about uh, quite a bit around here in the past few years. And Anabaptists have like a book that's kind of a favorite of ours. It's called The Martyr's Mirror. It's like a story of people who like made incredible sacrifices to like keep this story moving, uh, the faithfulness from generation to generation. And one of those stories um, is about a Mennonite who was on the run from the law. There's places on earth now, and there have been in our Christian history, times when it's actually been illegal to follow Jesus and people would get punished and even punished with death. So this guy was on the run because he had been found out. He was running through uh, like a field in the winter, ran across a frozen lake. The guy, he made it across the lake. The guy chasing him down runs in the lake, falls through the ice into the water. What would you do, right? I know what I would do. I'd say, thank you, Lord, for the answer to prayer. And I'd keep running. That's because I'm a sinner, right? What does he do? Um... Because he's a person who's committed to the fact that when Jesus said, love your enemies, he actually meant it. And the thing is, when, when God uses the word love, love isn't just a distant emotion to God. Love is, is action. So now he has a problem. I'm supposed to love my enemies, and love always calls for action. What is the action that I'm supposed to take towards this person who wants to kill me? And he goes back, and he helps the guy out of the lake. And we'd all love for the story to end with them hugging setting aside the law, but it doesn't. It ends up with that follower of Jesus still losing his life. That's an incredible story. Like, these are the stories that we tell our children and we tell our folks over and over again that keeps this story moving forward. Now, it's not only a story that has direction, it's a story that asks for action. Um, And it like, I heard another preacher in uh, in California, in the Bay Area, preach a sermon on on these same verses. And he spent about a half hour motivating his church. His, one of his main points the whole time was like, what are the signs of a great church? And I thought, you know, that's a, that's a great way to say that. What, what are the signs of a great church? What makes a church great? Um, now, it was a number of years ago when I was, uh, I was in high school, and I had a pretty rough go of my high school years. Um, you know, like... Almost all teenagers find a way to rebel, you know? Introverted rebellion happens like on the inside, like a cool anger that bubbles in there towards their parents. I'm an extrovert, so it like just all came out. And my parents tried to put some guidelines around me, and I wasn't having very much of that. And I I ran away actually quite a bit. I started in junior high. Here's what happened. I was going to get in trouble. I didn't like being in trouble, so I left. So I, I left for about four hours, and when I came back, my mom was crying, and my, they like, told me that it was going to be okay, that we loved each other, and then actually what happened is I got out of the consequences. So what do you think happened next time I got in big trouble and there was going to be consequences? Dude, I left again. The problem was, apparently that only works that way one time, because it didn't work that way again. Um, but I, kinda, I, I developed a pattern that if I didn't like what was happening in my family, I, I would leave. One of the times I left, I left for about three days, um, and then I, uh, the police had been looking for me. My dad was a pretty influential person, so they, like, they tracked me down in my little town in Southern California, and, uh, and they brought me home, and I was like so nervous. You know, I'm going like, to go face the judge in my house. Um, 
And so I'm sitting in the back of the police car. The police officer gets out. I'm sure my parents are super embarrassed, right? The cops are bringing their kid home. And the policeman goes up to the front door, knocks on the door. I see my dad come out. Like, my heart starts beating. Like, oh, I'm in so much trouble. And my dad talks to the police officer, and my dad closes the door. And the police officer walks back, and I'm expecting him to, like, open the door. And I, I'm going to go face the punishment. And the cop walks around the car and gets in the car and drives off. <laughs> so now I have no idea where we're going, right? <laughs> and um, I spent a month and a half in foster care after that. And I was starting the legal proceedings to be emancipated from my parents to say, like, this, this family's not my family anymore. I, I don't want any part of it. And after about, uh, after about six or seven weeks, I got a phone call. Now, one of the things that was, uh, that was helpful for me in high school was that I, I got invited by a friend of mine to a great church that had a great youth group. It was really incredible. This great youth group had a great youth pastor. His name is Joel. Um, now, I had been to youth group kinds of activities uh, before this, like when I was in junior high and like my freshman year of high school. And our church youth group basically consisted of extended snack time, followed by some kind of mix, mixer in which the guys were trying to figure out which girls they wanted to date and vice versa, followed up by a, a usually terrible Bible lesson by like an intern that was a seminary student at the local seminary who didn't really know how to work with kiddos, but was like doing his best to cut his teeth on it. And we usually ate those guys for lunch. Literally, there was one Sunday school class where the guy, the intern from the seminary who was in charge of it, at one point just told us all to put our heads down on the table, and then he walked out of the room and quit. That was like the last day we saw him. Um, so now in this church that I went to, it was totally different. That They had like a full-scale worship service for youth. They had like a youth pastor. It was this person's full-time job. And I could tell that this guy really cared. Joel cared about us. Some of the students would like lead worship. They were singing like high school kids worshiping in a room, like lifting up their hands. That was a little weird for me. I grew up Presbyterian. We didn't really lift our hands for stuff except to vote on things. <laughs> uh, Joel would preach sermons where he like, he literally expected us to be interested in following Jesus and reshaping our lives that way. Sometimes at the end of a sermon, he would like ask people who wanted to follow Jesus or like repent or grow or get prayed for. He'd have kids stand up and walk up to the front and would pray for them at the end of the service. He was like really bold. He was so bold that after almost a month and a half in foster care, he called me. And he said, hey, I, I think it's time for you to head home. And I said, well, you better tell my dad that. And he said, I already talked to him. So I got together with Joel, and Joel got me and my dad together. And he, I think, literally saved my family in that way. Um, because Joel and that church totally got one thing straight. They knew that, like, Jesus in the very early days of the church called a group of disciples together. So Jesus called together a group of disciples, then he empowered them, and then they started telling people, and then that group started telling people. And it's pretty incredible that since the days of Jesus, that is how the church has grown time and time again, one generation after another generation after another generation. But one of the things that Joel and that church got right is they would totally tell people all the time. They would say, listen... One of the important things about a great church, and this is what he would tell his church, he'd say, this, the, people, the group of people that have a seat in this church right now need to be thinking always about the people that are coming next. And that was really important. Joel totally cared about the fact 
that his youth group wasn't just for the kids who were already there. It was about the kids who were going to come next. He said, I'm not, I'm not going to hide it. This, this story is full of amazing, powerful deeds that the Lord has done. This story is full of wonder and amazement. This story is totally worth telling. So like, here's the question. If the story of God's people is like constantly moving forward, and the question is like, who, who's in this chair? If part of the job is the, of the church is to always think about what is God doing next, what's over here? Who is this? Now, we're in a series called Twisted Scripture, and I found a little bit of a twist to this psalm. This idea of like telling these stories to our children and to our children's children and to the children yet to be born. Um, and that little twist is this. I think often when we think about who, who is over here in this chair, we think about our kiddos, right? Now, let me pause and say something. That is totally true. You can't have a great church without great youth ministry, and you can't have a great church without great kids ministry. You just can't. It just doesn't exist. Why is that? Because it's Jesus' church, and Jesus deeply cares about those things. I want to tell you that youth ministry saved my life, and I don't think that it's any mystery that not only did Joel play a giant role in my life, he was part of the reason why when it came time for me to choose a career, guess what I chose? I was a youth pastor. Um, like, God totally cares about that. But there's a couple of problems. One of them is a math problem, right? If, if the way that the church grows, if the next generation of the church is our own kids, we have a math problem. Because what's the average amount of kids that an American family has? Two. What's an average amount of parents that a kid has? <laughs> usually, usually two. Sorry, it takes two people to make a child. <laughs> I got a lot of work to do here. Um, two parents to make a child, right? Okay, so if two parents make a child and your average family has two kiddos, if we lose two and gain two, we're breaking even. And I just want to tell you something. God's church is not about breaking even. Like, no. Okay, here's another thing, though. I want you to turn over to the Gospel of Matthew, and we're going to be in chapter 12. Because Jesus talked a little bit about families. Now, um... So there, there's a point in time when Jesus is having, uh, he's teaching and his mom comes around. Now, I don't know what happens to you, but when I'm doing something and my mom comes around, my mom is a really important person to me. Uh, she's a person I don't want to disappoint. And she's a person when she says jump, I say, how high? Yes, mother, whatever you need. And it didn't stop when I was younger. I found the older I get, the, the more committed I, I need to be to that idea. So now Jesus is going to have this interaction where his mom and his brothers are going to come and interrupt his work day. And we're going to say what Jesus says about this. So Matthew chapter 12, we're going to start in verse 46. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, this was his job. Jesus talked to the crowds a lot. So he's preaching a sermon. And then his mother and brothers stood outside and they wanted to speak with him. So someone told him, they told Jesus, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak with you. Now, what do you do when your mom summons you away from doing your job? You go. Look what Jesus says. Jesus replied to him, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? I mean, this is a, this is a tough spot that Jesus is looking at these people. His mother, Mary, and his brothers is like biological family. And then he's looking at this um, this collection of odd fellows that forms his little crew called disciples. 
people that used to be tax collectors and fishermen. I mean, when we read the stories, like the disciples were part of some pretty amazing things, but oftentimes they weren't the sharpest guys in the room. You know what I mean? Like, so now Jesus is looking at his family and looking at these disciples. Um, and he's, again, he's still teaching the crowd because he has something to say to them, which is something really important that we need to get. Because one of the things that Jesus is always talking about is the kingdom. And so this is another opportunity for him to say, look, I'm going to teach you something about the kingdom. The kingdom doesn't grow by having children. Lots of other things do. The kingdom doesn't grow by having children. You know why? Because you can't give birth to Christians. You can't physically give birth to Christians. Um, There's only one way that Christians come into the world. And that's by being born again. See, Jesus looks at his disciples and says, these guys, these, this is my mother and brothers right here. Because the church grows by testimony, by witness, and repentance. So the thing about what the next generation of the church looks like, the next generation of the church doesn't just look like who are the younger people who are going to take the baton and play their music louder, right? That's oftentimes in the church when we say, it's time for the next generation. That means the volume's going up, right? And maybe the volume's going up. But the thing about the church is it doesn't grow by just having children and passing the baton on to the younger. The thing about the way the church grows, how, how old can a person be and still be part of new birth in the church? How old can a person be and be fruitful? Now, let's go way, way, way back in the story, all the way back to Genesis. Last week I was here for a sermon by uh, Dr. Greg Boyd about Zionism. Raise your hand if you were here last week. Just from, I wanna, I'm curious, let me see. All right, about half of you, good. It was a great sermon. The rest of you should download it. Uh, Greg said something yesterday or last week that was brilliant. Like, I had never heard it before. It happens all the time around here. Greg says things that people have never heard of before. So that was great. So Greg says uh, he's talking about what it means to be part of the nation of Israel. He preached a sermon uh, last week about what it meant to be part of the, the group of God's people named Israel and the differences between that and the nation state that we know as Israel. There was a lot of stuff in there, and it was good. And one of the things that he said was, even in the Old Testament, a true Jew, what it meant to be truly Jewish, that person has always been a person of faith. And man, that made total sense to me. You know why? Because the, our, our earliest ancestor in faith is named Abraham. And the most true thing about Abraham, the thing that we know about him, is Abraham was honored because of his faith, Right? I mean, how old can you be and be fruitful? What an amazing story for us in Genesis. You know, God comes and tells Abraham, Abraham, he kind of, he he points him up into the sky and he points him out into the beach and says, Abraham, I know that you want to be fruitful because Abraham and Sarah wanted to be. They longed to be fruitful. And God made a promise and said, Abraham, when you look that direction at the generations that are going to come after you, I want you to know there's, they're going to be, there's going to be, you're going to be so fruitful, it's going to be like the stars in the sky. And like years and years and years and years went by. And like, no, no new life. Abraham decides to take things into his own hands. That does not work out very well. But then God provides, and Sarah has a child. And God says like, um... 
How old can you be and be part of what God is doing next? You can be 12. You can be 30. You can be 50. Do you know a person can be 85 years old and get born again? This is the amazing miracle of the church. Is that what God is doing next is not just a younger generation of people, although it is partly that. What God is doing next has to do with witness and repentance, and you're never too old to be part of what God is doing next. And if you're in the room and in seventh or eighth grade, you're never too young to be part of what God is doing next. Uh, a couple weeks ago, the Mennonites had a, a large convention here. And so all the Mennonite pastors from a bunch of the states that are like central plain states came up here and, um, and we, there was a little breakout session that was over in one of the conference rooms over there. And it was primarily led by Paul, and, and um, Paul Eddy told the story of Woodland Hills. Um, most of the story went like this, like, people didn't really want to lead Woodland Hills, but then God made them do it anyway, and look what's happened. That was kind of like the theme of the story. So, uh, you know, Greg didn't really want to be the senior pastor, and yet God called him to do it, and he did it. And, um, like, the getting started in a school. I'm just curious. Raise your hand if you were part of the very first group that was at, at Battle Creek Middle School. Raise your hand if you've been around that long. I totally want to see your hands. Look at that. Amazing. From school to school, it was like a gypsy church, right? Just traveling band of bandits all around the Twin Cities. And then, um, and then what happens is um, the seat that you're sitting in, right, you're, you're sitting in this seat right here. Do you know that you're sitting in that seat because God did a miracle? Now, I, by, as you can tell, I have a bit of a flair for the dramatic. Um, don't laugh too hard, friends. Uh, but I'm not being dramatic when I say that. I, I, we watched a video. The city council had to vote, and all the odds were that they would never vote in favor of it. And I, so I watched a video of each one of the members voting. And I could tell it was, it was Greg and a couple other people who were leaders. Like, when the vote came in that they got the thumbs up for this building, I just, like, you saw the passion and the excitement, the sense of, like, God, is, God has done a miracle for us. Um. And I want you to think about this. It's been over a decade in this building. This, this, this building that was a miracle that God did. And I want you to think about how many things has God done in this room? How many things has God done in this room? See, it's, it's not just Abraham that has this amazing faith story. It's not just Jesus and the early disciples that get to be in on these amazing things that God's done that need to get passed on. Like, when you first came to this church, I want you to think about it. Somebody made a seat for you. The very first time that you came, you didn't bring your own chair, right? Wasn't one of those parties. Someone else made a seat for you. 
And someone else stood at the front door and said hi to you. Right? The things that have happened in this room over 12 years, like if the walls could talk, you know? I just wonder, like, how many times did someone come in that was, like, deeply lonely, you know? Not like I'm bored lonely, but, like, I'm not sure anyone cares about me lonely. And someone shook their hand. I'll bet you that person out there greeting didn't even know it, but it was like a, it was like a little miracle. Or how many times has someone sat in, in an audience during worship songs? Maybe even someone who's not yet sure what they believe about God. And I don't think it's just because I spent time in Pentecostal circles. But when groups of people sing together, and when Jesus said, whenever two or more of you are in a room, that my presence is there in a special way, something miraculous happens when people feel the transcendent God of the universe is one inch away from my nose right now. And I can feel that God. That's like a miracle. Something happens when someone walks in the door and the burden that they're carrying is so heavy that they're not sure they can carry it anymore. And at the end of a worship service, people will stand up here and they can walk up to the front and maybe the, maybe the problem doesn't get fixed during the prayer time, but one of the things that happens is they realize, like, I'm, I'm not alone. I don't have to carry this alone. That's like a miracle. How many miracles have happened in this room? Now... Um, I'm pretty new on staff. I just, I just made it 30 days, and I didn't get canned yet, so I must have passed the first. I'm going to wait for the 90-day check-in. Thanks. Um, if they do can me, I have that cheering recorded, so I'll be able to build a case for that. But, um, and a significant part of my job um, is to think about this weekend service, this one and the one at 9 and the one on Saturday night. And to ask the question, like, what are the miracles that God wants to do with what this service is? Because I believe they're real. And I know lots of you do too. Um, I just, real quick, I want you to take a look right around you and see. Do you, do you notice an empty chair in your section? Go ahead, take a look around, just a second. Maybe count one or two of them. I, I want you to know, one of my spiritual gifts is clarity. And I know it's not listed in Corinthians or anything, but it's one anyway, so... Um, it's mine. And I just want to be honest with you. Um, I really believe that every empty chair that you see in this room, that there's like a person in our communities and in our neighborhoods and in our workplaces that deeply needs to feel the love of God that gets shared and experienced at this place. I totally believe that. And part of my work is to see, God, can you take my gifts and try to help make it real? Because this, this building is a miracle. And the fact that that seat there is a miracle. And I want to utilize that. Um, A few months ago, uh, actually I think it was maybe even up up to a year ago or in the winter, there was a capital campaign that was titled Making Space. And what happened was uh, a bunch of money got raised so that we can both freshen some things up in common areas, we can make the space more useful and inviting to some of these incredible organizations that utilize our space. Catholic Charities and a child care, among lots of other things. This building is getting used by people, and we want to make it as useful as possible. And so I just want you to know something, that uh, what's going to be happening over the next couple months is we're going to take the money that was given, and we're going to start using it. And what using it means is things are going to move around and change. Physical things are going to be different. Some of, the, you're going to, some of your experience is going to be different. 
Um, Maybe that chair that you're sitting in now might be moved around a little bit. And I know it's basically a capital offense in churches to move your chair. I know you sit there every week and you think it's your chair. We might move it and I just need you to be aware of that right now, okay? And I want you to know that we're not doing that just to do it. You can put paint on the walls and turn a chair in another direction and have it not mean anything, you know? But some of my hopes for what happens around here on the weekends is that every time someone walks in the door, every single time, they're welcomed in the spirit that the Father welcomes. Like, how would the Father embrace people that walked on this campus? That's what I want. One of my hopes is this, is that when people are in this room, there are, there are deep moments of connection with God. I mean, think about this for a second. The God who created the entire universe, we share this regularly here, that God is not distant And so many people live as if that God is distant. And oftentimes in this room, 52 weeks a year, over a decade now, people have met God's presence in this room. And I want to see that grow. This church, um, in a lot of ways, came about because God put a call on, on Greg. And Greg, for years, right, has been filling this pulpit and has been doing like with, um, with passion, um, sometimes almost too much of it, right? Like explosive passion. There's nothing that Greg loves to do more than to challenge people's view of God. It's like, it's affected me. There's almost not a week that I go by in a sermon and my picture of God isn't changed in some way. What a gift that is. Um, and that legacy should continue, Right? I mean, that, that idea of raising the challenge that Jesus had with people, that thing still matters. It still moves people. And I want to close up my sermon. I'm going to be finished a little bit early today. I want to close up my sermon just asking you to think about a couple of questions. And I'm going to ask the question, and I want to let it sit for just a second. I want to ask you, If the church has grown generation after generation and has moved forward because people have said, I will not hide the story. I will tell it. I will tell it courageously and I will tell it even if it's at great cost. When is the last time you told your faith story to somebody? When's the last time that happened? There literally is only one way the church of Jesus Christ grows and that's by testimony and repentance. What's yours? When is the last time that you've told that? The second thing I want to ask you, and we all have people that are like this. There are people who, when we see their lives, we wished, or we wish that they were at a different place spiritually than when they are now. And this is really hard because for some of us, it's our kids young ones and old ones. For some of us, it it might be our parents, our brothers, our neighbors, our coworkers, sometimes spouses. Who is it for you? Who is a person whose spiritual life you wish it was in a different place than it is right now? Now here's one of the things that happens. I'm going to challenge you to write down who that person is and I'm going to ask you to start praying for them. 
sometimes in our culture of activity, what happens is we think that prayer is what you do when you can't do anything else. And what I would say is like, prayer is what you should do before you do anything else. Nothing of any kingdom value happens without prayer. Will you start praying for that person? And then the third question I want to ask you is this. How much are you thinking about and praying about what God is doing next? Sometimes I meet with people, and uh, especially Christian folks and even Christian leaders, and one of the things that happens is I oftentimes hear churches talk about the glory days. Um, even a, a group of younger churches uh, will come up, and one of the visions that they'll cast is they'll look all the way back here to the Acts chapter 2 church. This vision that was cast of like this group of people, they sold their stuff and they shared and they prayed every day and these amazing things were happening. And sometimes when I hear them, what I hear is like they want to like go backwards in time and get back to that original radical church. And that's awfully tempting to say, oh man, we'd love to go back there. The problem is like the church doesn't move back in time because God's not going back in time. Like, the direction that the church's body and the direction that God moves is like, God is moving forward. This story has direction to it. And God calls his people to, like, to move out in faith into what the future has. How much are you thinking about and praying about the people that are supposed to be in this chair right here? One of the things I learned in high school at my youth group from that youth pastor is one of the things that makes a church great is when the people that are sitting in it are more worried about the people who will sit in the next chair than they are about themselves and sitting in their own chairs. That's a sign of a great church. And I deeply believe that Woodland Hills is a great church. And one of the reasons why is because you make it great. So let's make it great. Why don't you stand and let me say a prayer for you. Jesus, the reason the church is great is because you are. You just are. We can sing a million songs that just will scrape the surface. At the depth of your beauty, the amazing mystery of the way that you lead us, the love that's so full we just can't ever get to the end of it. And the thing about your family is that there's enough love to go around. There's not a lack of it so that we need to hoard it. There's enough of it for us and everyone else too. Lord, my prayer is that you would, you would transform me and my heart so that my focus would be on, what, God, what are you doing next? What are you doing next in me? What are you doing next around me? Remind me that my earliest ancestor is a man of faith named Abraham. And my leader and Lord, Jesus, is you. The one who says that the cross and not the sword is the way that history moves forward. Remind me that I'm to have courage, that your amazing deeds and your amazing power and the wonder of what you've done in every single generation, not one of my ancestors of faith has ever been disappointed by you. So I won't be, and neither will the future. God, I pray that you would keep leading us into the radical kingdom, even if it's at the very edge of what we're comfortable with. Keep us moving forward. In your name we pray.
Amen. I'm going to have the prayer team come forward. If you have a need to get prayed for, don't carry it alone. These folks would love to pray for you with that. Have a great week.